Hi, thanks for tuning in to the Generative Work podcast with me, Sarah James Wright, exploring all aspects of future business and conscious leadership. Hi, and welcome back. I'm delighted to be joined today by Adam Duncan of Life Stage, the creator of the Power of Aging workshops, and the author of The Power of Aging, Finding Yourself in the Second Half of Life. Hi, Adam. Thank you for being here. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for inviting me on. You're really welcome. So today we're going to be talking about your book and your work around supporting people in the second half of life, not to fear death and aging, but actually to embrace it and to embrace a kind of particular approach to life that could serve them and indeed serve the wider world around them. And we'll get into, because I have a feeling there's a crossover and there's a lot of similarities between what you're talking about and what I would be talking about in terms of generative work, generative leadership. So we can get stuck into that. But I wanted to start with your motivation, because I know you've had a very distinguished career as a writer and a training um, creator, designer, work for places like the BBC and Amnesty. And then I know it was around the time of your mother's death that you really felt a pull towards a shift in your work and a shift in your thinking. So tell us a bit about that. What, what was it that prompted this change for you? Yeah, um, well, my mother, I didn't really get on with my mother at all. Um, we were complete opposites and we, it wasn't a happy relationship. But about two years before my mother died, um, we found um, we found some nice moments together, mm. and, and she she said some nice words to me, which I'd never heard before. And she had quite a long, slow, painful death, um, mm. and she was in a hospice in Chesterfield, and I was up there visiting her, and. Um, I'd never, I hadn't had much to do with hospices before. You know, they were another world. Of course, they are until, mm-hmm. uh, until you know, your parents or a friend or somebody enters one. You know, why would you have that connection? And it was another world. And I found the atmosphere in this hospice quite extraordinary. It was like a, I'd never never experienced that before. Mm. And a lot of my time there was simply waiting for my mother to wake up, which she might do occasionally. And I would sit there and I might read a book and I'd watch the nurses and the doctors. And everybody was so calm. Mm. And they were so peaceful. It felt like there was a real inner peace in this place mm. that I didn't, hadn't experienced in, in general life before. And there was also humour. And I could actually feel a sort of sense of love Mm. in that building. And it felt like it was built on love. You know, all the donations, all the work, you know, it was something very beautiful about it. And um, one lunchtime, I went to go and get a sandwich from Debenhams or, you know, the nearest place cafeteria. And 
and I went to buy a cup of tea and a sandwich and I got to the cashier and it looked as though she had died a long time ago. She really looked like a ghost. Mm. Well, she didn't look like a ghost. She looked like the undead. Yeah. And it was having spent so long just observing and absorbing this beautiful hospice place. And obviously I had a heightened sense of, 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 of you know, I was highly sensitised because being with, you know, a mother dying and all of mm. that, and you go through all... I sat down, had the cup of tea, and I looked around, and they were all undead. Yeah. I was in a movie. Yeah. It was another world. And I had this real sense that I wanted to grab all those people and take them back to the hospice. Yeah. And said, this, this is where life is. You know, death and life, they're together. And, of course, you know, it's, they, they're working those people in, you know, the, the capitalist, the, you know, the... It's the an reward. inhuman environment. Yeah, the reward yeah. and punishment environment that, um, that we have. And the hospice was nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. And they seem to really support life no matter what state it was in mm. Mm. after that i i felt my life change and i thought I, I i love this stuff i love i love what's going on there and i did a death doula course mm-hmm. and that's for people um you know caring for people as they die caring for families etc it's a wonderful course and i felt this was my tribe but i it, it was with an organization called Living Well, Dying Well mm-hmm. in Lewis. And I felt that uh, I learned so much, but I was more interested in the living well than the dying well. Yeah. So a lot of those people that I was on the course with were worked in hospices and places like this. And I was really interested in some of my contemporaries. A lot, lot of people... My friends, are prob- most of them are a bit younger than me, maybe, you know, five, ten years younger than me. And there was something coming up about their parents dying. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what is there for them? You know, how to... And I was re- so that's when, that's when I started this journey of designing a, 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 um, uh, a, a workshop to support people, particularly in the second half of life. Yeah. And I do, I, I, I really agree with you that there is something about death and ending that can bring us back to life. Mm. So whether we're nursing someone, you know, caring for someone at the end of their life, or we're in the phase after their death where we're in grieving and loss, I I think we tend to focus more on what really matters because it's very easy to get distracted by the, you know, the Debenhams cafeteria vibe of life that we just endlessly on our treadmills and doing what we do. And there is something around birth and death that, that kind of wakes us up from that sleep, I think, into actually experiencing life 
as it's meant to be lived. You know, we're in contact with this force of life in a different way. Is, is that what you're kind of explaining that you felt too? Yeah, um, yes, absolutely. And there's also something about reaching a certain age mm. where you've done an awful lot of things and you can keep on doing them <laughs> and doing them again and again and again, you know, whether it's relationships, whether it's hobbies or excitements or jobs or travel, mm. you've done an awful, you've done a lot, you know, well, I had, and I, I judge most people my age have done a lot. And so it's all, it, for me, it felt like I needed to drop down into something deeper and more meaningful. Yeah. Did I want to keep on doing the same things over and over again that I'd already done? Only this time I would have diminished physicality Mm. possibly diminished mentality because you know these things do do diminish as you get older yeah so that wasn't really going to work out for me mm -hmm. I needed to I needed to drop into a, a more vital space and I think what death offers is strangely enough a kind of vitality an urgency, an energy. Yeah. I, I can feel like, because I, you know, I'm someone that's been through a lot of loss. Mm. You know, I've been in this place a number of times myself. And I've also, you know, witnessed and supported a, num a number of people through this place. And so I'm hearing two things. I think one, whatever age we're at, where we meet the death of another, that does tend to open up this potential for dropping in to a deeper sense of meaning. But I guess what I'm hearing from you on top that, you know, as, as we get older, we're also then facing our own mortality alongside that. And so I guess that's the double whammy, isn't it? It's like one life, you know, death is calling you into life, but there's also that awareness of, well, I've only got so much time or energy or vitality left and I want to spend it wisely yes absolutely but there's also the connective force of death mm. so it's something that we all will experience mm. and it's what binds us and unites us as human beings is the fact that we all age and die, mm. you know. Um, and I, what gives me motivation with my work is that <clears throat> people don't accept this in our culture, in our society. A lot of people don't want to accept this. What death uh, do you mean, or the end of things? Or, well, I mean just mortality. Mortality. I mean, aging and dying. Yeah. And certainly a lot of young people that I've spoken to, they think that science will come up with some kind of answer, you know, longevity or whatever. You know, you get an upgrade, you know, so you get mm. each year you get an upgrade so that you just keep on going. 
And a lot of people don't want to accept this aging and death. And that's what I think creates a disconnection between people. Mm -hmm. My passion is to create connection. Mm. That's a really lovely framing for it, that it's not just about managing our own relationship to our own death, but the potential, if we can connect to life, is actually to connect to one another more deeply as well. Yeah. 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 And so I run these workshops and we we go through some loss because we've all experienced loss. Yeah. And we do some processes. And even in just a day, you know, people relate to each other because aging and death is about vulnerability. Mm, And what what we don't want generally is to be vulnerable. But of course, through vulnerability, we create connection. If I'm if I'm if I'm just presenting a, a, a an image of somebody who's you know completely impenetrable, I'm not vulnerable in any way. Mm. You know, there's no connection at all. If I'm really vulnerable and you're really vulnerable, actually, perhaps we can have a really interesting connection that might be really meaningful. Mm. and might give us both a sense of purpose around life. Yeah, and I can really feel the similarities here around, you know, what you're presenting in terms of meeting ageing and mortality well, and what I'm presenting in terms of generative leadership. Mm. Because absolutely right, you know, we we live our lives with these masks on, that we, d- we don't find many places to really show up as our authentic self. Mm. Or now even the word authentic self, you know, it's like it's something to aspire to rather than something to reveal. We're adding on rather than taking mm. off. And I think the other aspect where I'm sort of noticing um, similarities is we're working a lot with uncertainty, you know, because the, the world is uncertain. We don't know. We're not in control of the future. And, of course, that's never more so than when you're facing your own mortality. We never know when that is. I mean, even if someone's, you know, with a terminal illness, you cannot predict the time and date. And I know now when um, my stepfather died three years ago and the doctors in France wouldn't ever give a prognosis because they said, well, if we give a prognosis, we found that our patients are really well behaved and sort of dropped down dead when we said, you know, (laughs) and if they don't give a prognosis, people can kind of meet that for themselves. Mm. But just that idea of meeting uncertainty, not Mm. being sure of what's ahead or what we're facing, that also requires some vulnerability in us, doesn't it? Just to be able to say, I'm a little frightened or I'm a little weak or I'm a little unsure, but that's okay. That's still, you know, a human experience. Mm. And as you say, there's a potential for deeper connection Mm. in the reality of that state. Mm. Yes, the the unknown, um, you know, the is is such an interesting area Mm. because I think 
you know, with Newtonian science, reductionist thinking, mm -hmm. we feel that we can master all the elements of our environment. And the more we think that we can do that, the further we come from the truth. Yeah. Because the truth is it's not, you know, we live in a whole a whole universe yeah. where everything is interconnected. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so this, this unknown, you know, it's, it's interesting where science is because um, it seems that the more we discover, uh, each discovery just creates another thousand questions yeah. that we don't know the answer to. And I love that. Yeah. I love not knowing. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. terrifying. And I think, you know, I think there's this, this big part of us, um, especially where we are in our culture at the moment, where we want, we want comfort. We mm. want the known. We want insurance. We want everything to be centrally heated, protected, et cetera, et cetera. Everything yeah. booked up, the care home, the, yeah. you know. And yeah. actually, of course, the reality is we, we, we don't know anything, as you say. I mean, we could, yeah. you know, virtually anybody can die tomorrow. You know, we just don't know. So I, I think that where science is, that there are a lot of, you know, particle physicists, cosmologists, mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. that are saying we don't know and that but they're saying it from um the perspective of so you know something like the the number of dimensions for example mm -hmm. you know in the 90s you know there were 12 dimensions apparently or 11 dimensions you know string theory mm -hmm. And then, and then I, I think more recently that a lot of mathematicians were talking about 25 dimensions. <laughs> That's a big jump in dimensions, isn't it? Yeah, it is a big jump. But, but you know, the cosmologist, mm. he's head of cosmology at um, Caltech, mm -hmm. Sean Carroll, he said... Um, and he's very highly respected. He he says there are seven seven trillion 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 dimensions. Wow! So, and that then gets really exciting. I mean, you know, that gets into stuff like the Lotus Sutra, of course, yeah. and you know, some wonderful, wonderful writings. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we know we know nothing. We know nothing, and let's yeah, you know, let's enjoy that. Enjoy. Let's that. enjoy Absolutely. knowing nothing. Well, Absolutely. it's interesting because I do think there's a sweet spot now. There's a sort of triangulation place between, as you say, the quantum physicists, but also neuroscientists, like the latest scientific thinking, plus 
the most ancient wisdom traditions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in my world, the the kind of latest thinking around people and organizations that's come out of MIT, like Theory U and also stuff like Spiral Dynamics, there's Mm -hmm. a kind of point where all these really diverse roots converge. Mm -hmm. And it is on this that, you know, basically we know nothing, let's enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And I think this has a bearing too on creativity because you can't have certainty and creativity. You know, the first step in creating is really to move into the unknown. And I think that gets lost, um, you know, in organizational life from this desire for certainty, mitigating risk, seeing further into the future. And there's something quite liberating about admitting, like we're doing now, well, I know nothing. And, And then how can I live? You know, if I can accept that I know nothing and perhaps deal with the fear of that, then how can I live? Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if you would say a bit more about in your book, what are the the bits you kind of draw out for people to turn towards once they sort of face into their impending doom? Yeah, <laughs> Joyfully. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, first, before that, I kind of look at transition. Right. And how transition happens, and especially in kind of indigenous cultures, for example. Mm. Um, we have, um, you know, we have rites of passage for young men are quite well known in indigenous cultures, but there are other rites of passage. Mm. Uh, and, of course, we don't really have much in the way of rites of passage. And so that might take us into looking at the mystery Mm -hmm. because the mystery is, the mystery is what you have to step into Mm. to move on in your development, Mm. in traditional rites of passage. Mm it's about entering into what they call a liminal space mm-hmm. where um, all of the previous reality has no meaning at all. Yeah. It's a sacred space where change can happen. Yeah. And so this is this connects very much up to the mystery. Mm-hmm. But then I, I, I'm interested in... Um, what are the processes that in this sacred space that can transform our view of the world Mm. and in a safe way it needs to be in a safe way although it's a dangerous activity yeah well sort of safe enough but or, yeah. you know, but also edgy enough. It is an yeah. edge place, isn't it? A trend, yeah. You know, it is an edge place. We do need to go to our edges more often. Yeah. Mm. And then you come out of that space and then, you you know, you come back to reality. But, and you, you know, in an indigenous, indigenous society, you're welcome back in, but with a different identity. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually a different identity. You're, yeah. you're no longer a boy, you're a man or yeah. whatever. Yeah. So um, for me, the processes that I use various processes to, within that space, within that mystery, mm. um, 
one of them, which is quite easy to explain, and um, is um, visualizing your death. And this mm. is used in quite a lot of um, indigenous cultures still, the few that we have. But mm -hmm. so um, visualizing your death is a wonderful exercise that I'd love to do with everybody in the world. <laughs> well, over the age of... 12. The, well, I was, I was thinking, actually, actually, certainly over the age of, of 20, I would say, because mm. this, this process is, you know, you're going to die. Mm -hmm. How do you want to die? Imagine your perfect death. Mm -hmm. And you often you can do this with another person, and you maybe kind of calm down, meditate, and you have a notepad, and you think of, you know, do you want to die in a bed, or mm. what, what's the room like? This is your choice. Okay, how do you want to die? And you can go into that maybe for an hour or so, and you know, what's the pillowcase like, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. Is it cotton or silk mm. or, you know, is, is the window open? Can you hear the bird? So you go into a lot of detail. You, mm -hmm. you create this scene of your own death. And when I did it for the first time, um, it did definitely change my life. Mm. I remember getting home from doing it and feeling like, this weight had been taken off mm -hmm. my shoulders. Oh yeah, I'm going to die. Mm. And who knows, I might even have some, I might have some influence or choice in how I die. We say, well, I could get run over by a bus tomorrow, mm -hmm. but the running over of the bus is only a stage in the dying. You know, mm -hmm. those nanoseconds, you know, mm -hmm. what happens in those nanoseconds? We don't know. And I guess, you know, it's like we may have some control over how we die, but we certainly have some control over how we live. And I think it reminds us of that. And your experience of meeting your own death in that process reminds me of like a, a sort of similar and different experience once where I was doing a constellation and as these things sometimes have, you know, an element comes in that I hadn't necessarily set up or we didn't quite know what it was. And then it, it just kind of came to me that this was my death that had appeared in this constellation around my work. And mm -hmm. I wasn't frightened by it as I, you know, if someone had told me death was going to show up in a constellation beforehand, I think I'd have freaked out. But actually I felt really alive, really calm, really excited. I mean, for one thing, it was a little bit of a way off, which was good. I mean, if it was, if it was right in my face, maybe I would have still freaked out, mm. but you know, it was across the room and it was as if the span of time and space between me and my death suddenly was revitalized and lit up and it was like a reminder to me to live you know to really live this portion of whatever is left yeah yeah, yeah. really profound and it, it, it is about living in the moment mm. 
you know, I mean, this is the mantra that goes on meditation and yoga and everything yeah. else is about living in the moment. But living in the moment without a purpose or an intention mm. um, isn't, isn't my way. And I don't want to criticize anybody else's way. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, if that's where they're at and that's working for them, and yeah. you know, that's great. Uh, for me, I feel I need intention in my life. Mm -hmm. I want I, I want to create value, mm -hmm. and I want to do whatever I can to stop this continual rush to war mm -hmm. and separation. Yeah, because. Um, it's so endemic in our society. Um, and, you know, I don't want to get into any politics okay. now, but, you know, you can see, you can see all the causes there for more war. And I think we have a choice in that. Yeah. And I think that part of the part of, um, Activating a positive choice against war is by creating really meaningful connection between people and looking at fear because, you know, fear is behind it quite a lot, you know, fear. And so I think that the fear, one of the root, key roots of fear is aging and death. And so by us opening up in a structured way around aging and death, we can create something communal. So I'm, I'm interested in the communal aspect of this. Okay. I, I want to kind of dig a bit deeper into this because oh. I think there's a lot of what you're saying is applicable to anybody at any age. Mm you know, understanding that life has natural cycles and that everything that begins has an end. I mean, I do this within organizations or a project. Every organization has a lifespan, let alone every single person working within it. So the idea that everything has its time and that endings are part of life, I think that applies to everybody. And the idea that we need to embrace the mystery and in doing that kind of serve life, find a purpose, set our intention. I think all of that is really relevant. It's as relevant to like the millennial generation. But what feels a bit different, and I, you know, I, I don't want to get too much into the kind of okay boomer <laughs> territory, but the generation that you're particularly aiming this work at, and as I say, I think there's a universal quality to your work and you've packaged it in a way that it's particularly appropriate in this form for people in the second half of life. But that baby boomer generation, in a way now, are often criticised by the next generation for their focus on self. So what they fear is losing their own life, losing their wealth, losing all these things. And yet often when I speak to the many beautiful young people that I work with, they have 
fear, but it's not for themselves. They're already tuning into that communal aspect and their fear is for the planet. And it's a very real fear. And, you know, we know suicide rates are really rising, Mm -hmm. particularly in that generation. So I'm wondering, I don't know if I've got a question around this, but I'm just, you know, like feeling into... Yeah. What is it that we can really... Okay. I, I, I... I really hear that because I've got two sons Mm. and, you know, I know all about their friends and, you know, so, yeah. I think it feels like my mission Mm. is around maybe 40, 50, Mm 60-year-olds because this fear of aging and death creeps in, especially around late 40s, early 50s, menopause, midlife crisis, these kind of things. Right. Retirement, redundancy. Right. You know, like, who am I? And, you know, oh my God. And And then you start care homes. You know, we've got 500,000 people in care homes. Yeah. You know, like, oh, care homes are my... My parents are going to care homes. Now, when I, the way I see it, and this might be wrong, is that this bunch of people, I, I hate baby boomers, but, you know, this... You mean this, you hate the term? This sort of demographic, say yeah. 40, 50, 60-year-olds. Yeah. They have picked up the, a fear, an institutionalised fear of death. Mm-hmm. Medical uh, over medicalization, mm. over professionalization of death, and so as they become older, this fear increases. And what I feel is that this gets passed down through different generations. Mm-hmm. What I would love to see is a generation of elders within the community and these aren't people that tell young people what to do or instruct them in any way yeah there are people that are there that listen that listen without judgment yeah so there are people there who are going to their death but they're present they're not living in fear and they can support young people I love and that. they can embrace their lives because mm. this would be such a beautiful thing. And I feel that a lot of young people are, are feeling isolated. Yeah. And it's not the parents very often that can do the work because they're too close. And they look at the grandparents or they and there's nobody there. They're all obsessed with their care home or, you know, like, oh, my arthritis, et cetera, et cetera. You know, if we could, if we could be open and embrace, be there for them, you know, just there. I, I really like that idea. And I guess I would say, you know, I love the notion of eldership. And when you think about you know, the, uh, the kind of indigenous peoples that, as you say, there's not many kind of living examples left of that. 
But then the notion of eldership there was very different. But I think part of that is because life didn't change terribly much in those kind of simpler agrarian societies so that you could genuinely look up to your elders. And I think sometimes that's got a bit lost. So yeah. I've, I've noticed young people often are closer emotionally to their grandparents because there's always tensions between kids mm -hmm. and their parents. And it's always like it's easier to kind of talk to the generation up. But I know that, you know, if, or if I think about my parents, I can value a lot about what they gave, but I don't, they've not been the kind of people I would go to for, I haven't valued their philosophical choices in life, you know, because they were this very different generation. What they were interested in, what felt important to them is very different for me. And it's different again for my kids. So it's almost like we're changing so rapidly. It's hard to learn from the past. It's almost like we're needing to learn from the future and lean into the future. So then the role of eldership is not to have facts and knowledge to pass on. It's something else that we need mm -hmm. in that eldership. And it might just be more if, if, you know, if your work expands and there's more people that can really tune into their sort of true nature and their true relationship with life, that could be the gift from the elders to the next generation, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Because... I don't like the term elders. So mm. I was talking to somebody last week who, who runs a, a, a sort of uh, some large scale workshops and he was very interested he talks about elders. And I don't like the term elders because right. it's a label mm -hmm. and it's kind of got this thing, oh, these people know, they know. Mm -hmm. They're wise, they're kind, compassionate, <laughs> the elder. Perfect beings. <laughs> but we've all got a shadow side. Mm. And so it's another label I think we can do without. I have in workshops talked about eldering, mm. which is, which I'm still a bit unhappy with that. I feel that we just uh, need to... Our generation, my generation, we need to learn to listen without judgment. Mm -hmm. We need not to be controlling because, mm -hmm. you know, we've controlled all our lives. I've controlled, you know, whether it's just within, you know, little areas of the family or finite. It's been control, control, control. That's what I needed to survive. Yeah. But I feel now I... I I can serve much better if I lose this idea of control and am just present there. And I think the power of being present yeah. for young people, whether it's you're being mischievous, mm. whether you're being humorous, <laughs> whether you're just listening, that I think they I think they respond to that. So I think what you've named, and, you know, there's a lot more behind that too, around listening without judgment, not controlling, you know, some of these qualities of living kind of really deeply in contact with life. You see, I think that's exactly the same things that I'm kind of introducing to the younger generation, you know, when I'm working with them in coaching. So in a way, 
I wonder what we're really talking about. Is this shifting consciousness? You know, with through the sort of spiral dynamics teachings, that idea of the evolution of consciousness, that we, those of us who are ready to do that are hearing this call into a different relationship with life itself. And in a sense, my bit of that is looking at people in the workplace. Your bit of that is looking at people who are kind of facing into aging. But what we're talking about is exactly the same shift of consciousness. And in a way, there's many of us that are holding that Mm -hmm. desire and intention now. And we just do our work in the area that we know. Yeah. Um, I was talking to somebody yesterday, Dr. Jonathan Coley, Mm. who's got an organization called The Common Room. Mm-hmm. And it's the umbrella organization is the age of no retirement. And he's the age of no retirement, did you yeah. say? Oh, and nice. <laughs> he's setting up, he's been setting up for the last quite a few years now something which is uh, a, cro- uh, a cross generational space within communities, mm. within workspaces, etc. And he, he, He's documented quite a lot of his work, and I'll, I'll give you his details afterwards. Because yeah, I, thank I, you. you know, I'd really like you to give him a call or him to give you a call, because what he he was saying it was that the corporates, um, they 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 kind of always ended up undermining his. Maybe we should edit some of this. <laughs> Maybe, but maybe you should be careful what you say on his behalf. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, yeah you're not going to about to, you know, ruin his, uh, yeah, ruin his career, are you? Could edit this, <laughs> <laughs> but this little bit. But sorry, we got onto this. But it it did. I'm very interested in what he said around, you know. Ultimately, it was ne- it never was in the corporate's interest to develop his kind of work ultimately. I'd agree with that, you know. And uh, so I'm, you know, I've worked in corporates all my life or a lot of my life and, you know, training or whatever. And my my passion now is just within community, trying to Mm. develop stuff within community. Because I've just seen the terrible dysfunction in in in, in a lot of organisations, not all, but yeah. And really, the dysfunction is everywhere, isn't it? The dis, you know, when you, I, I mean, I'm thinking a lot at the minute about breaches of trust, mm. you know, about the absence of trust, and you can take a slice through the whole of life and find, you know, all of us have experienced breaches of trust in our families, in our own experiences, it's in our communities, it's in our workplaces, it's in our politics, it's in society. You know, there's, we've really got some work to do to trust ourselves and to trust life again. You know, this distortion that has got greater and greater and greater the longer it's gone on. So I, but having said that, I do feel very hopeful that there are so many of us now standing for this shift of consciousness into this very different way of being. 
And it was interesting to me when you talked earlier on about the um, like the ritual and setting up the sacred space, because one of the things that we do often when we're working with a team is is really disrupt how it is. We need to do a lot of unprogramming. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we've literally set that up so that we won't let the team come in and we'll set up a room and then we'll say to them, as you come into this space, the rules are different because we're really inviting them to draw a line between how it's been mm-hmm. and step in and experience something with this you know, new ways of seeing and experiencing life. And it feels to me that that's very much what you're bringing to to your audience, you know, this group of people who are facing, you know, well, a a lot of challenge as well. Often at this age, people are looking after their kids, their careers, their parents, their own health. It's a lot of challenge, isn't it, in that pivoting middle part of life? Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, um, I... When we started this talk or earlier we were, we were saying something came to mind for me which was an expression we use in Band of Brothers mm. which is an org- a charity for supporting young men mm. in the criminal justice system and a term we use very often is You're, all of you is welcome here. Yeah, beautiful. And and it's very much inclusive leadership, isn't it? It's very much got... And, of course, when we walk into a room, it's like, what bit of me is welcome here? Mm-hmm. What shape do I give to, to this room here? You know, this bit or that bit or, you know. Yeah. And, and it's not working for us as a culture. Yeah. And it looks like we've got to a point where um, change is possible because it is so awful and uncomfortable yeah. to our psyche yeah. that we will really in, endeavour in different ways so hard to make that change as you're doing and I'm doing this passion that we have, you know, there's a lot of people doing it in different ways. And, yeah. and I, I guess we will, we're, we're linking up as well. So, yeah, it's exciting. I love that. And that feels like a really good place for us to, to close on. And, um, yeah, like you and I linking here and linking with anyone, anyone who might be out there listening and anyone else who's doing this work. And I love that sort of image of it's almost like a little kind of net around the world, um, just, you know, a, a net of kind of light and love mm-hmm. holding uh, the potential for I was going to say another way of being, but it does feel to me also it's we're talking about kind of restoring ourselves to our factory settings. I do believe that our deepest nature is to live in this way. Yeah. It's yeah. our true being. Yeah. Yes. Um Oh, that's that's maybe another podcast. Well, let's let's <laughs> let's have part two, Adam. Let's come back I, and I, talk. I, more. I love that. Yeah, no, I mean that's a really interesting point to leave on actually yeah okay well isn't this nice we're leaving with another mystery i like this absolutely (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> We're ending in the unknown. And um, thank you so much for being here today. And I would very much look forward to part two and we'll have another discussion. Right, and in the meantime, so your book, The Power of Aging, Finding Yourself in the Second Half of Life is available on Amazon. And your workshops, the Power of Aging workshops, uh, there's information at lifestage.org. If I got that right. Thank you very much. Perfect. Yep, that's right. Perfect. Thank you so much for being here today, Adam. Take care. Thank you, Sarah. Pleasure. Bye. Bye. So thank you for joining us for this episode of the Generative Work Podcast. And what did you think? If you have any questions or comments, it would be great to get your feedback. And if you would like to come on and ask me three questions about generative work, we'd love to hear from you. There are links in the bottom of the description for the email and website where you can get in touch. We're looking to build a truly collaborative community for people interested in working generatively, so all ideas welcome. And we look forward to exploring another topic with you next time. Drop us an email if you'd like an update on our next podcast release. Music.